Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for your download and really for engaging what we're talking about here. You know, we hope that you're not just listening and forgetting but really engaging and learning and taking it and using these things that you're learning in your life. I'm Phil Dark, your host, and with me, as usual, is Paul Jobson. He, is, he has his wife back since the last time we talked from uh, a long trip where he, you know, Paul got to hang out with his four boys for a couple weeks, and he is actually awake now, so that is amazing. Paul, how you doing, man? I'm good. I've recovered from my Two weeks with the boys, and I think Marcy has almost recovered from her two weeks overseas, just in time to ramp up for the start of school. So we are uh, going all, all cylinders right now, so it's awesome. But we are glad to be back together and doing what we do best. Absolutely. And I've, I've, had, I've been able over the last couple of weeks to, to do what I love doing too, which is helping others flourish and, and making good things better, as we talk about on this show a lot. And I've uh, been able to do some disc training at some different universities nice. and that's been a blast and really been able to dive deeper into leadership development. And as you know, that gets me going. So I'm fired up about sure. that. And I'm also really excited about this interview we get to have today. Yes. Um, today we have Dr. Jeff Spencer. Jeff is a guy who does a lot of different things. You know, he is an elite performance coach for a lot of people that you know. I'll let you look that up. He'll probably talk about some of them in this interview. They're definitely names you've heard of before. He also was an Olympic cyclist, and as we found out right before this interview, is still cycling a long way very often. So that's something we'll, we'll get into as well. And as I am doing this research, I find out he also is a glass blower and glass sculpturer, um, which is pretty amazing. I, I, you know, I don't know how much we're going to get into that, but I'm sure it'll come up at some point. So anyway, folks, we have a good, good time coming your way. Jeff, how are you doing? Well, great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to this conversation. I know we got connected with a mutual friend and brother of mine. And so I can't wait to, to, to hear, you know, just really what, what we're going to be able to talk about today. And as, as we usually start, just love to hear your story, including how you developed your passion for cycling, how you've developed your passion for leading others and for this performance coaching that you're able to do. Well, uh, actually, when I was seven, I wanted to become an Olympian. I thought that'd be the coolest thing ever. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was fascinated by the idea as someone that followed Marvel Comics and looking at the superheroes out there, I really thought that the uh, Olympians were the superheroes doing superhuman feats of achievement, that I had a very strong gravity towards understanding the why behind that. And uh, I was asked to go on a bicycle ride 25 miles by a competitive cyclist at belong to a club. I didn't even have a bicycle. So I borrowed a bicycle. And at the end of the 25 miles, uh, the other riders who were much older than me were tired and I wasn't. So I sort of figured there's something interesting about this physiology here. <laughs> and I felt like cycling plus the Olympics chose me. I didn't choose it. Mm. And so that would be the vehicle by which I did become an Olympian. And there were three angels in my life that developed a certain part of me that were necessary to create the capacity to be able to perform at the Olympic level, which I did uh, 10 years later. And then I went on to get my master's degree in sports science. And then that's where I began my advisory working with athletes. I've helped athletes won over 40 gold medals in a variety of different sports and business people came to me, wanted to become their own champions, their own gold medalists. So I helped them become iconic 
in their businesses. And because of that, the athletes shared with me, I need to absolutely make sure I don't get injured. I get back from injury quickly. What do I do? And the business people came to me and said, well, listen, I don't want to die like my same age counterparts at the age of 38, 39, 40, or 41, 42. How do I not do that? I went back to school and got my chiropractic licensure where I became kind of a specialist in acute trauma and in wellness care. And so I had kind of three things going for me. Number one, as an Olympian, I knew how to win. And I knew what it took at that rarefied level to become what you needed to be to be able to make that happen. And you can't study it and interview people and be it. You have to have lived it. And that's my DNA calibration. I'm calibrated towards gold medals. I appreciate silver and bronze medals, but it's very hard for me to even say those words. And <laughs> the other side of that is that with my knowledge, having a master's degree in sports science, I knew the academics along with my experience as an Olympian. I knew how to craft a body that could stay in the game and push when it had to push and stay in the game over the long term to not prematurely blow itself up just when it was got the skill of, of winning down. And with that combined with my ability to make sure people get and stay well, people realize that Jeff is like a one-stop Jiffy Lube shopping center where you can go to and he can look at all the variables that need to be there and in what proportion personalized for the individual or the group to be able to get to the top and stay there with the least amount of time, effort, and, uh, and expense. So that was kind of the path from where I started to working you know, with some of the household names, as you said, getting my advisory on how they become iconic and how they leave the legacy that has high impact on humanity. Absolutely. You know, and I love hearing what you're talking about is like cycling chose you just something you're good at. I love that. But at the same time, we all know that it wasn't just hopping on a bike and going on a couple rides with people that led you to the Olympics. Right. So how did you, uh, what were some of those critical steps as you look back that took you from that initial 25 mile ride where you weren't that tired at the end of it to mastery really of it you have to become, you have to reach to become an Olympian. Yeah. Well, I come from a welfare family and, uh, you know, parents, I didn't understand what parents were for. I thought you just need to figure out life out for yourself. So I had the self-starting gene. I didn't need to be motivated by anybody to do anything that was naturally there. And the first of the angels that I met was my cycling coach who, when I showed that, uh, possibility as in a cyclist with that kind of gift that I had, he came to me and said two things. He said, number one, winning is a learned skill and I'm going to teach you how to win. And if it's within you to become an Olympian or a world champion, then I want you to come and train with my group that are Olympians and world champions. We're all 28, 29, 30, 32, et cetera. You know, you're 13, but I want you to listen to the conversation. And if you can understand the conversation and why things are getting done in the organizational way that they're getting done, it's natural for you to do, because I can't put anything into you that's not already there, then you have a chance to become an Olympian. And so I had that exposure. I was able to grasp that. And with that level of confidence, along with two other angels, it taught me the tactical side of things It helped craft my body and my mind to be able to perform at the Olympic level. And 10 years later, I, I did become an Olympian. Yeah, you know, and obviously I'm sure we could talk for a few days about all the details of that story, but you know, I I, I didn't even mention probably the most important part of your life, not I'm, I'm assuming I say probably cuz I don't want to make assumptions, but I'm based on our brief conversation beforehand, you know, you're you're married and you have a a daughter that you were able to adopt from Colombia. And um you know, I just I'm always love talking to people about this as far as parenting, but what what has been more challenging to you? 
uh, the road to Olympic cycling or adopting and raising your daughter? And let's, well, let's the, talk about the, that the, for a minute. Actually, the Olympics were easier because it was me against myself. And because I didn't have a lot of responsibilities, I could devote my attention to one thing singularly. And my job was to become a full potential player, uh, to become an Olympian. And then once I got there, to, to, to remain one. So the objective was very clear. There wasn't a lot of interference in the way. I had the self-start gene and I showed up and I had great coaching. So that was pretty, I guess, academic in a certain sense. But, you know, we adopted our daughter when I was 58, the height of my career, um, seriously. And being called to adopt uh, the daughter was not a difficult thing for us because people ask me, well, how do you decide the dreams that you're going to pursue? And I say, well, I, I don't really pursue dreams. I answer callings. And when something is put in front of me that I could recognize that I'm being called to, it's very easy for me to accept the responsibility of riding that wave to maximize whatever that outcome might be. And so that's the challenge with the, the daughter was the fact that she didn't speak English. We didn't speak Spanish. She had no school when she came at the age of 10. She had a parasitic ridden body. She was severely abused since the age of four in every conceivable way possible. She didn't trust anybody and she had severe malnutrition. And so I told my wife, I said, look, you know, this is not a, an easy task here. This is a formidable foe. And our desire was to manifest a potential, not just save a life. And because I'm a gold medal sort of a guy, I told my wife, look, in order for us to be the father and you to be the mother that she deserves as part of the deal here, I need to quit my job, not quit my job, but I need to reduce my job by 90% starting tomorrow. And along with that goes 90% of our income so I can be her father. And so I stepped into that and it was a 10 year process to get her back to a point where she was performing mm -hmm. at the same level as her same age counterparts. But my wife cried every day for nine years and 10 months. It was so difficult. So mm. uh, the twists and the turns and the challenges associated with that cannot be underestimated. But, but I also will say this, is that if, if you don't have a sustainable challenge in life that causes and forces you to ask a deeper set of questions, there's no way that you're ever going to find the deeper sense of capacity that you truly have. When life is too easy and too good, there's no reason to dive deeper into yourself. So for me, it was a 100% a blessing. Uh, I learned so much from that experience, and I uh, love my daughter as much as anybody could love anybody. The best experience of my whole life, hands down. I absolutely love hearing that. I none of that surprises me in your answer. And you know, I I don't know if you know this about me, but my my uh, day job is running an organization that works with orphan and vulnerable children and families all around no the world. Idea. And so, no idea. And so, Bless your heart. near and dear to my heart. Absolutely love hearing that and hearing how. You know, you just were, as you said, you're called to it and yep. you, you're, you're walking with it and doing what you got to do. Absolutely love that. I'm so encouraged by that. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. I think a little bit of that will probably answer the next question too. It just kind of defines, you know, who you are and what you're about, but, but tell us, share with us your why, why do you do what you do and how does that, how does it lend itself to, you know, what you're doing on a daily basis? How are you living out your why? Well, I think the why, I mean, that changes throughout a lifetime and kind of where I am at my stage in life is that number one, I live the experience of being a full potential player. I know what it takes to do that. And that's something that I would want everybody to experience because it's a euphoric state of being where everything becomes attainable. And again, it's like a learned skill and there's a methodology to it. And for me, there's only one of everybody in all of creation. There are 8 billion people on this planet like right now, and there's only one of us. There only will be one of us, and each one of us has got a unique 
capacity to leave something as an immense contribution to humanity to live a life well lived as well if we connect with that which 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 we are best at and we use that as a life platform and for me i know how to do that and if i have anything to say about it i'm going to share with people what the real story is on how you do that a lot of people are following a lot of mythology that promises an outcome like this but can't deliver but i've cracked the code on it and that's the reason why i'm still in the game at my age yeah well, when you when you say, I think we hear this statement a lot, but I I, I hear it from you, and I, I think there's a different probably meaning to the sense of it, just from coming from you and who you are and what you're about. But living a life well lived, I mean, that's something that we hear. It's on it's on greeting cards, it's on emails, it's on people's motivational things and quotes and whatnot. But when I hear it from you, it just it sounds different. What what is it? What's what do you mean when you when you say that living a life well lived? There's there's some there's more there's a lot of depth that I think I'd like oh. to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you know, in my version, a successful life is a reconciled life where you can walk off the field knowing that you did everything possible to honor life's opportunity and to give thanks to those people that deserve it, but also to show other people a path forward that could take them from where they are to where they want to get to. And for me, like people have asked me, well, what do you want to be said about you when you transitioned here? And it's like, I want to be known as the guy that stepped up and showed up for duty and answered the call. And I know that if I can do that, then I can leave the field for the final time, knowing that there's nothing more that I could have possibly done. So I've never lived a life trying to achieve my goals for myself to showcase myself or to try to make up for some sense of perhaps inferiority that I feel about myself or to prove somebody wrong because they said I couldn't do anything. I don't think those are the right motivations for doing anything. I think there needs to be an acceptance of the honor or the privilege of going through this dimension. And to me, the best way that you can honor that is to do your job as you're called to do, because I don't think there's anything more that could be asked of us in this dimension. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and you've talked a lot, even in this interview, I've heard other interviews you've done and you talk a lot about calling. And that's really, you know, talk about called being called into cycling, being called into adopting your daughter, you know, being called into all these different areas. And, uh, I know a lot of people ask me often, how do, how do I know my calling? I'd, I'd be curious how you'd answer that question and really start with, take a step back and, you know, what do you, what do you believe a calling is? And then how do you know what your calling is? This goes back to, as I said before, every one of us is born with a unique set of attributes that's unique to us and our potential to again, create a life of passion, purpose, productivity, and prosperity for ourself, but to also leave uh, perhaps a case study on what you can do to live that yourself. Or you could also go on the other side of it, like my dad did. He was the guy like, don't be like me because you don't want to end up dying homeless on the streets of New York City when you're a true genius. That's what was his downfall. So I really personally feel that in a situation like this is that the most important word of all is receivership, meaning that rather than trying to pursue everything, fearing that you're going to get left behind and wanting to make a monument to yourself or have certain things that connotate a certain sense of arrival of accomplishment, I've found that even at the highest level of performance, whether it's sports, entertainment, or business, when you can hold space by being in a space of receivership where you're opening up your heart, your soul, and your mind to possibilities, 
where you don't try to clutter it by looking under every rock, trying to figure out what's next, but you're letting what's next come to you. And when the options show up and there's a certain level of resonant recognition, like you see something, there's a magnetism towards it, your energy increases, your enthusiasm for it, but you're still calm, but yet you're passionate and you can see where this leads and the tranquility that it would bring you if this were to manifest. That to me is one of the most important skills that help us kind of shortcut the path through experimentation that oftentimes doesn't serve us well because of the scar tissue that we get from it. It's another way of looking at it. And that's the path that's worked for me. And that's one of the things that I work with my clients on because it takes a ton of effort to chase everything out of fear, fearing that you're not going to find it. But if you show up you know, in tranquility of being, you spend deliberate time like contemplating and remaining open and promising that you're going to give everything a look that shows up as a possibility. It, there's always enough energy to take action on things that are revealed to us. You know, where the energy gets sparse is when we get frustrated because we're not going as fast as we think that we need to get to, to get to someplace. And we fear that if we don't get there, we're going to get left behind or ostracized or socially disconnected. And I just don't feel like that's a healthy place to live because it doesn't really deliver on the richness of what the human experience could be. Jeff, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I love kind of what you're saying about these things. And I think that I want to go back to even the moment where you guys decided to adopt your daughter and yeah, you kind of cut things off. I think that momentum of things of being present in the environment and letting things kind of come to you, that, that seems like a, that sounds like an easy thing. But when you stop cold turkey, a career to start something else, is that more, is that in my mind, it's like a more difficult space to sit in and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to not chase after things. Or I'm going to kind of let things come to me. Uh, if I'm making sense, can you explain the difference of maybe those two circumstances where maybe it's a starting from zero basically uh, into something or being in the process of something and allowing things to come to you? Does that make sense? How yeah, to, it does. Or, yeah, I, yeah. 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 I, I think I can answer that. Like, you okay. know, there, there are several things that I learned from adopting my daughter. It's like, number one, you can love anybody. You don't need a special set of circumstances to love someone. You know, it kind of really is a one-way street where if you want to do it, then you do it. And you don't look for an exchange or a reciprocity. You know, it's not like that. And the second thing I learned, which probably answers this question, is that at a certain point in life, you don't have any security or certainty whatsoever. You don't. It's a mere speculation on what you believe it could possibly be in the future, but you have no guarantee of that. And so for me, when things show up and you get the calling, and you trust the process, like you really trust the process, which I did. It, it, it wasn't like faith against what I didn't know, but I really trusted the process because I know that when you show up with honor and you put your time and your effort into it, then whatever the reciprocity of that will be in the human dimension will show up and it will be whatever that is without a barding. I just don't think that, hey, I'll do this if I get that. I, I just don't think that's the way that it's done. So trusting the process is really important. And that's a distinguishing characteristic of every prolific achiever because prolific achievers do what other people don't. They do unconventional things that don't seem like they should work, but yet they do. But the fact that they're doing them, um, the press, people, friends, even your family may be the very ones that say, what are you doing? I mean, why don't you do something that really matters, that leads someplace? You know, here you are chasing another one of these dreams. Well, they don't get that, you know, 
gifts can lead to lives of high impact that enrich a person and give a person confidence in that there are certain ways of doing things that are really time efficient. So to me, inherently, you must trust the process because I can tell you in raising my daughter, my wife crying every day for nine months, and I was still responsible for working with some of my clients, a handful that I work with, that was difficult. But I had to trust the process. And, and even to get through one day to get to sleep at night was its own miracle because it was so unbelievably like difficult. So I, I really find that there's another side to this as well, is that I always kind of felt like the outcome of this doesn't matter to me because I know why I did it. And I can walk off the field knowing that I showed up. And when you come from that place, there's a certain invincibility that you feel about it because there's nothing kind of in this earthly plane that can kind of touch you or hurt your feelings or make you feel bad because you showed up, you know? So the invincibility that comes from that, you know, you get rid of some of the things that you really think that you need to make an impact when you kind of really don't. And so I always felt that that was part of the equation as well, because it, it created a self-sufficiency of belief in one's ability to find a way forward when there maybe seemed like there wasn't a path or, or, or a door or a portal to go through. And so with that, that's kind of how I would look at this. And I always felt personally myself that it gives God an opportunity to show me a different, bigger way to a faster, better I could never come up with. But that's not the reason why I did it, because I don't think you barter with things like this, like in my own opinion. And I think that many of the things that we do, we do out of fear of loss. We fear we do out of fear of not having enough for later. So we hoard things. We don't share. We get very fearful. We push too hard. We don't know how to relax. We can't enjoy things because it's like, you know, never enough. There's always something more that we need to feel that level of security. And I feel that all the best performers have got a certain level of spontaneity about themselves that trust in the process. They trust the way they see things. They're unafraid to try an unconventional kick. The coaches are, are not fearful about doing something different that's never been done in the discipline before. And then they become the leaders. So they were the ones that were criticized by the press and everybody else initially. <laughs> so I, I just feel like it's an amazing opportunity to ask yourself, who am I and what do I really think about this? And do I trust myself enough to take action on it? And when we do that and we end up doing things that serve us well, then our level of confidence skyrockets. And then our potential of what life can be amplifies to a, an exponential scale. I think that's an, an amazing lesson. And I, I would just encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that segment again. I just think in our, in our environment of quick gratification and wanting everyone to, to love what we're, what we're doing, uh, I think that's a great message and I appreciate you sharing that. And that's exactly what kind of what I was trying to get at with the question. So I appreciate you uh, hitting that uh, out of the park for sure. Bit better than I thought uh, it could be. So I appreciate uh, how you, how you worded that. I think just a great, a great, uh, a great message to our listeners and even myself for sure. I'm like, Hey, be who you are, be what you're about, be, you know, be true to your God-given abilities and talents yeah. and not look to entertain the, the ideas of others that are who you are. So I appreciate that, Jeff. Thanks for sharing that. It's awesome. Thank you. It's very thoughtful. Yeah. That, I think that's a message. That's a message so many people need to hear nowadays, right? I think in the yeah. world of social media, in the world of comparison, which as we know is the thief of joy, we had on another yeah. guest uh, recently who talked about achieved identity versus received identity. Mm. And there's so much of that in that answer as well. This idea of 
you know, a lot of it is it talks about in, in the Bible talk, it talks about surrender, right? It, ha- it mm-hmm. starts with surrender to what you think sometimes, you know, is the right, right way and to say, I'm open and, and to be able to understand all those things is all of that seems to be wrapped into that answer. But I um, absolutely, absolutely love that. Jeff, I'd love to, I want to dive into to your cycling career a little bit. For me, cycling, I wouldn't call it cycling. I was a, a bike rider as a kid. You know, I, unfortunately <laughs> for me, I, I would jump on a bike and ride down the street and I was tired. So I knew I was not going to be a cyclist, <laughs> but funny. I truly appreciate the sport for sure. Uh, and, and it's amazing. Share with us a little bit. Let's start with, you know, what, what was maybe one of the most defining moments in your cycling career? How was it impactful? What did you, what did you learn from that? Oh man, what a great question. I got goosebumps from head to toe on this. Um, I remember when I qualified for my first international competition where the best riders in the world got together and I qualified for the 500 meter final and you're racing essentially in a teacup, you know, it's a bank oval track that's, uh, anywhere between 250 and 400 meters like in length. And so when I got up on the starting line, I drew the middle position and there's a guy that stands behind you that holds a seat. So the bike remains vertical. So I got down in the position. We were like two minutes to go before the start. So I said, you know, let me check out the competition here. So I looked to my right and man, I saw this guy's legs. It looked like a rhinoceros, man. It's like, it's that. <laughs> so I, I went up along his thigh and I went to his Jersey. And then I looked on the left shoulder and it had five interlocking rings. Could only be one guy is Olympic champion. You know, it's like the rings on his shoulders an advertisement. It's like, look, dude, there's only room for one guy in this track and it's not you. Let's not forget who the boss is, right? So I said, okay, man, maybe I should look to my left here. So I looked to my left, same thing, man, just these monstrous legs. And so I went to the jersey, it was a white jersey, and I went up the torso and it was blue, black, red, yellow, green, concentric rings around the chest. It was the world champion. So here I am sandwiched between the Olympic champion and the world champion. And I'm thinking to myself, and now it's like a minute to go, right? And and you can't stop the clock because it's going in a minute. (laughs) So I said, holy crap, you know, it's like, these are guys I read about. What if I beat them? They're going to get mad at me. <laughs> these guys are mad at me, you know? But I said, wait a minute, man. My, like, my, like my training time is ex- better than that. There's no way that I, I couldn't, I have a chance to win this thing. What am I thinking? And so, you know, we were 30 seconds now and counting. And I realized, you know what? This is a do or die life moment. It's like I either cave to be accepted and approved of or I trust in, and I honor my talents and my preparation. What am I going to do here? And I can't stop the clock because now we're at 20 seconds, you know? And I realized, man, this is do or die time because if I don't do this right now, the invisible hand holds me back. I may never be able to trust myself again, man. Life freaking defining moment. And I knew that with my right foot up, you got this two inch pedal. I needed to put every ounce of strength that I had into that pedal at the moment that the gun went off. That's all I could focus on. That's all I had. That's was my one reality. You know, then it was three, two, one bang. So I put everything I could into the bike, the bike lunged forward. Uh, I was leading. I led all the way down the backstretch into the final corner. Then I felt like a little bit of a concussion on my right hip. It was a Olympic champion. Give me a headbutt that stalled the bike a little bit. So the uh, world champion came up underneath me and we were neck and neck to the line, man. I just buried my head. I pushed as hard as I could. And then at the finish line, I threw my bike like this and the world champion won. And so after I restrained myself from homicidal tendencies, you know, I felt like I did my job. But I also was very aware that if I didn't step into this moment, 
I may never be able to trust myself again. Because I've seen this happen, these do or die moments, you always retreat back to what didn't work before, but somehow you think it's going to work this time. You know, the human mindset, the human way of looking at things, the survivor side of us, we kind of have two parts to us, as I see it, two mentalities. We have the survival mentality that's driven by fear and fear avoidance. And then we have, which is a biology, by the way. And then we have on the other side of this, we have the highest instinct that we have as a human species, which is seeker. That's what all the science says, man. Biologically, you're a seeker. Well, if that's the case, then we're seeking what? We're seeking achievement. We're seeking creativity. We're seeking putting our individual stamp on humanity. And these two things were at war with each other within me, man. Part of me was scared to death. You know, the other part of me, man, this is your, this is your chance to do it, man. Who am I going to listen to? And obviously, I, I went with the unknown, which was you got to put everything you got into this because this is your chance. Like right now, you're never going to get this chance again, which is exactly what I did. And that's a very scary moment because you don't have a parachute. You know, it's like do or die in a certain sense. And generally in situations like this, everybody goes back to what the experts say or what they've been told to do, which is usually a fear-based impulsive action that can't take you to where you want to get to. And so, you know, I got my silver medal and uh, I put my silver medal around my coach's neck because he deserved it because without his tutelage, there's no way, there's no way I ever would have gotten there. So that was a defining moment for me because that's where I really started to believe in myself because I put it out there. I wasn't reckless. I looked at the numbers. I looked at what the preparation was. I didn't talk myself out of it. I had to really say to myself, what do I really believe about this? And I had to stand behind myself in a way that I've never had to stand behind myself ever until that time. And that was a defining moment for me that I will absolutely never forget. Yeah, you get to those those moments where you trust yourself. I'm imagining because you yeah. you believed in the work that you did prior yes. to get there, right? There yes. were no holes yes. in the preparation. I think right. we we lose sight of that sometimes with people who who achieve excellence. We look we we look past what they've done to get there. The excellence it takes to get to the 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 visible excellence that we all see. Um, but but when you got to that line, that that clock was counting down. You could rely on the fact you had no holes 100%. in the excellence that preceded that moment. And that's, I think that's such a great, a great lesson. I love that. How, how was that carried into your, 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 your business life? Like looking back that you, I mean, obviously that's a still certainly a very fresh uh, moment in your mind to this day, how you retell like the story this just, morning. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you get chills when you think about it? I mean, it's just, that's just awesome. How is that, how is that translated into, to, to your life now? Well, the champion's golden rule, the way that I see it is do the homework and the test is easy. Mm -hmm. That's the way I see it. You know, you prep well, you perform excellent. And when you know you prepped well because you have a body of evidence, then you show up and you trust your preparation and you execute. You don't try to control it too much intellectually. You got to trust it. You got to give it everything that you got. So that's uh, a theme that has consistently played itself out, whether it's boardroom, locker room, it's all the same thing. Once you, whatever you have demonstrated in practice, then you could execute that and more in real time if you don't get yourself in the way. And that's not, that doesn't come naturally to peach people just mm -hmm. to say that this is, this is a supernatural skill that has to be learned that you can learn, but it, it is a not a natural way of being. Our natural way of being is to snivel, make excuses, whine and complain about everything. 
that's our natural state of being. If you want to live a natural life, just be ruled by your emotional impulses and your intellectual fantasies, you know? But if you want to play the real game, it's where you develop the skills. You be very specific in your training to execute what has to go right when you're performing in real time. If you can do it, then remember how you did it. You got to trust that process. And you, again, that would be the process, but that's supernatural because we're asking ourselves to step outside of our human fear-based survival instincts. But the only way to create a life of distinction is to really do that. So again, to me, as you said, you know, for the millionth time, excuse me for being redundant, but you know, your homework is everything. And most people, they don't spend enough time doing their homework. They think that if I'm doing my homework, somebody else is getting the advantage because they're on the playing field while I'm doing my homework. It doesn't work like that because they're playing with faulty mechanics. You know, they're playing with faulty ideas. At a certain point, faulty ideas and no amount of will and talent could put you into a level of performance that your preparation hasn't enabled in advance. So again, I want to be on your team. I want to be on both of your teams because of what you're telling me. Because I know what you're saying is exactly 100% what history has told us to be true. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, you know, we could, we could talk for hours and hours about all these things. No, no doubt. Um, I just feel like, you know, we, there's so many good things in that last few minutes. And I know a lot of those things came from lessons on the track, lessons on the road when you're riding, but also from coaches that you've had. And, you know, you talked about the angels in your life and one of them was a coach and I, maybe more than one was a coach. I don't know, but you know, we always like to talk about that. Who, who was the, and it might not, I know you to say who was the best coach is always hard, but who was probably the most influential coach in your life that you've worked with? Um, and what set him or her potentially apart from the rest? Uh, and again, similarly, how, how are you using that today? My cycling coach taught me physicality and fitness and tactical strategy. I owe him everything on the bicycle for sure. But then my second angel was a Victorian born in the late 1890s. He was 76 and I was 18 when I met him. And he chose me to be the apprentice that helped him create his art glass masterpieces. And what he did, he played at the breaks and at lunch, he played classical music to me. He read the great literary works of history. He shared with me uh, poetry and all these things that he was an expert in and said, I need to fill you up on this. And I had the capacity to absorb it. And it created an artistry to what I do that I would not have if it were not for him. My cycling coach brought the body. My artistic coach brought to me the heart. And my third angel was a man of great dignity with a French accent that was so reconciled and such a humanitarian because he gave me support and food when I needed it, welfare family with Olympic aspirations. I rode my bike 100 miles a day to and from the university as a scholarship student. He realized that I needed help and he was the most resolved man that I've ever met on the planet with such dignity. And he was a concentration camp survivor in World War II. And that explained to me why he was who he was because he was able to forgive. And Mm. so with those three mentors, they awoke something within me as a collective that allowed the best parts of me that I had no idea were even there to surface and merge into a composite me that's been able to produce certain things because I've respected my past through this journey in life itself. So um, 
I'd like to give the credit to them if I may. No, I love it. And yes, of course. And um, what's so evident to me there is just even tone of voice, the, the depth that they've had of impact in your life, obviously, decades and decades ago, um, and uh, still, still fresh. And, uh, you know, and I think that goes to so, such an important lesson that we need to have multiple mentors in our lives that, that touch different parts of our being and, and different parts of who we are and what we're doing and, and um, the different aspects of our life. I know one of my great friends talks about that. He has, you know, 10 different mentors in different areas of his life that he knows he needs help in. And I love how intentional he is on that to, um, you know, if it's financial, find a financial advisor, you know, but not just an advisor, but a friend who knows you and understands your weaknesses and your difficulties and maybe where you'll struggle and all those things to be able to go into. So I love that. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Same, same, Jeff. That's just some, some great, some great wisdom. I'm getting so much out of this uh, podcast. I appreciate you being on here with us. Phil. I always feel a little bit guilty that we do this because we gained so much from this podcast and uh, just your ability to to share with our listeners is just pretty special. So coming from a soccer coach's background, actually coaching you know, team sports, take us through maybe the difference of the the mental game, the differences of the mental game between the individual and, and a team sport. How are those how are those different? And how do you how do you approach those things differently when you're when you're doing your work? Well, an individual that's performing by themselves, it's a different level of structure because you're kind of accountable to yourself in a certain sense, like singularly, and it's a bit more manageable. Uh, I mean, obviously there's a, another side of exposure because it's, it's only you. Whereas in a group setting, the idea of teammate comes into it. And for me, a teammate is a sacred label. It's a sacred label because what teammates do, they show up on time out of respect for their teammates. When they show up on time, their teammates can trust them. Uh, when they celebrate each other's successes, it creates harmony and unity and harmony allows the team to perform greater than the sum of the parts. When we uh, look at the contribution of each teammate based upon their potential, and some people are extroverts, some people are introverts, it helps the introverts come out of their shell to contribute because the thing that you do say may be the thing that germinates and changes the team for the better by a factor of a million. So you kind of don't have the luxury of holding back, in my opinion. And if you talk a little bit too much, you're an extrovert. Well, then you need to pull back a little bit and show a level of restraint and respect for your teammates. So I just feel like you should always be a teammate of something because I don't think there's anything better in this entire life experience than to have a team win. Because those are the things that you will remember for a lifetime, perhaps as the pick, pinnacle events of your entire life. I see people still wearing hats from 50 years ago. Why are they wearing them? Because it was the absolute best experience possible. Why? Because it was people in cooperation working together for a common goal. There was no sniveling, no backbiting, no gossip, no withholding, no hoarding, no nothing. That's why I love the Tour de France. I did nine Tour de France's. And that's, mm -hmm. the, I guess, one of the ultimate team sports because it's three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And for sure, the strongest team wins. So. I have a, a huge, huge, huge appreciation for the necessity of learning to be a team player. And another thing that team players do is that they realize that the team doesn't need, need to be perfect for them to be the perfect teammate. 
If you're in mm. 90% agreement with everything and the 10% you're not, well, you show up 100% and you give everything that you got because that 10% doesn't matter. And that's a really important life lesson to learn. And the pride of ownership or of standing behind somebody that inspires them to do more for you than they would do otherwise if they didn't trust you as an individual. I mean, that's the power of what trust is. I would say that if a person is not part of some team on an ongoing basis, then you're disconnecting from a certain part of what's essential for us to develop and maintain our highest level of humanity. Paul and I often talk about nuggets of wisdom on this show. And I will say <laughs> that was like panning for gold and finding three or four <laughs> in the pan right there in one answer. Um, that was some some great stuff. I I could not agree with you more on that. I mean, Paul and I both are, you know, we're both lifelong soccer players and played on different team sports, multiple different sports. Yeah. I personally have never played at an elite level in an individual sport competition. Um, just played tennis with my friends and just even feeling that difference where, as you said, you're accountable to other people. You're accountable yeah. to showing up on time. And I love that you use showing up on time as an example because it's the little things, right, in teams. It's the little things that make or break. It's a lot of little things mm -hmm. that lead into the big things, right? You don't just mm -hmm. become a champion. You don't just become a team that's going to win everything. You don't just become right. a team that's clicking on all cylinders. It, it, right. it happens over time. And, you know, and in that same vein, you know, the next thing we want to dive into a little bit is, you know, in your Corner, band, corner man elite performance coaching, you talk about the anatomy of a champion and the champion's blueprint. What is that? What does that look like? Well, in, in my view, there are like, if we look at what I call the champion's ladder, of course it's gold, but if you look at the champion's ladder, there's like five areas that I've found that if you have a basic competency in, and all of these five areas are built uh, together so they form a system because remember the system is what creates the exponential output. It's not the single part. It's the harmony in the system is what again, creates the zone performance, et cetera, the world record. Mm -hmm. And so the five different components competencies are number one, you have to have a champion's mind. And what I mean by that, I didn't say a mindset, a mindset is rigid. We have a survivor mindset. It's rigid. It's got to be this way. It's got to be this way. It's too rigid. It's not flexible. There's no creativity in it, but a champion's mind is flexible. It's able to receive information. It's able to look at it, digest it, interpret it, collate it, store it, route it, and edit it. It's an active living, breathing process that, again, can take the context and figure out what's the single best action to take. That's what a champion's mind does. We could talk forever about the distinction, but a mindset that's rigid is very different. That's like believing that if you recite something, it's going to manifest. Well, not exactly, because the doing is what does the manifesting. It's not really the thinking about it. And so the second thing is, on second rung on the champion's ladder, you have to control your day. Because if you can't control your day, you can't control your life. And if you can't control your life, then you can't be a leader because nobody's going to trust you. It's too erratic. There are too many inconsistencies in it. So having an idea of what a daily structure looks like. So at the end of the day, uh, progress has been made. A demonstration of one's championness has been displayed and reinforced. 
and challenged and successfully surmounted. Have to learn to control our day. Number three, we have to know how to win. You know, winning is a learned skill. And it's something that doesn't come naturally to people, but it's a learned skill. And when we learn it and we can apply it, we understand the components of it, then we are not intimidated by it. And we're not seduced into thinking that if you want it bad enough and try hard, you're going to get it because that's not true. You can't get to a place that you don't have the skill to get to. And that's why when we learn that winning is a learned skill and the components of it, like in my model, there's two divisions and each of those divisions has got five parts as revealed by my observation about the process over the last you know 60 years in the high performance world. Number four, that's uh, you have to be able to see what's coming. There's clues that we're getting constantly that if we can interpret them correctly, it allows us to look around the corner and see a couple things. Number one, it will allow us to anticipate certain opportunities that may be coming that we can create a readiness for to capitalize on when they show up. It also can reveal to us blind sides that are starting to form that we don't really see yet or are in their infancy that we may not see that can grow and can stall us in process or worse yet, knock us out of the game. So there has to be some mechanism, some knowledge of history based upon what we should anticipate from where we see ourselves as being that's essential. And then the fifth rung on the ladder is momentum. You know, momentum is probably the most important commodity in the dimension that we live in, like time, energy, and space. Momentum is everything because every time the momentum stops, it takes energy to get it back. And then most people's lives is like a seesaw, like this. It's up and down, it's up and down, it's up and down. And each of the downs is going to be where you lose momentum and you got to put all this energy into it to get back to where you were. So really, when we learn the skill of conserving energy by knowing how to structure when we push and when we pause in our aspirations to achieve our goals, then it's almost like a up spiral where the transitions are super smooth. The radius is getting bigger as our proficiency and creating our wins gets bigger and bigger. That's what uh, momentum should actually look like. So when those five areas are simultaneously built over time in proportion to each other, then we get the combined benefits of all of those that are exponential. And we can't do a life's evolution in one decade. I mean, you know, it's seven or eight decades where this process is continuing. So as long as we're continuing to build and we're not adding more to it, we're refining our skill in those five areas. And that what's allow, that is what allows us to be able to create a legacy that has high impact and it has a significant number of achievements that represent what our potential was. And it allows us to be able to kind of walk off the field at the end of the day, feeling like, you know, I'm human. I made human mistakes. I see it. I learned from it. You know, factor that out. I found my way forward and there's not much more I could have done because I didn't turn away from reality. And I did what I had to do to, you know, create a life of meaning and purpose and value. And, you know, at my age, you start to think about things like this, you know, because, you know, when the hourglass is turned upside down and it's got less in it on the second half, then 
you start to look at these things in a slightly different way. So uh, the thing I, I would want to say and leave with the audience here is that it's not about one thing. It's about proportionality of these five areas being built simultaneously so that your maturity rate is consistent so that when you learn the art of, skill, of these skills and at a certain point, they all come together, then you become a force to be reckoned with in terms of the accomplishments that you can make in the life that you can live. Yeah, you know, and I can't help but go back to the beginning of the conversation here. Mm -hmm. And going back to that calling and that surrender that we talked about at the beginning and the momentum. And you, a lot of people might think, well, you killed your momentum when you adopted your daughter and went back to 10%. But yeah. unless you see it in the sense of calling, and that's part of this moving forward and growth and living into calling, and it actually was keeping momentum, it just changed yes. What you were putting the energy into? Am I am I making assumptions there, or is that was no, that what you're that, saying here? That's correct because it's like you know, for me, the goal is not the number of achievements because a lot of people that is their goal, and they kill themselves in the process of doing it, and they ruin relationships, and they uh, lose fortunes, and they have catastrophic health events. So to me, I, I get why people do that in their 30s, maybe in their 40s, but you know, you realize that that's not really the grand prize, but you're not going to know that until later. For me, it's how did you show up? You know, did you show up well for people? Did you show up with honor? Did you do what you could do? Did you answer your callings? What more could have been asked of you? You know, or did you turn your back and make all your decisions out of fear? Did you try to amass something for yourself to reinstate yourself or make yourself look good in your own eyes? You know, I, I just feel like there's a tranquility of being here that's really important. Like I feel I can walk off the field and whatever happens, man, there's nothing more that the universe could have asked of me. Doesn't mean I lived the perfect life. I did the best I could with what I had. Yeah, I get that. But you know, there's always ways of reconciling the past. I think tranquility of being is really important. Like, man, you know, I got all this stuff, but man, I don't feel so good about all this stuff. You know, I don't feel so good about myself. And it's not about the stuff. I mm -hmm. like stuff, you know, as well. So I think that, you know, as we age, as we go through the decades, our level of what the scorecard looks like changes a lot. You know, in the 20s, it's about altruism. In the 30s, you just want to kick everybody's ass and get all the stuff. You know, in the 40s, you want to prune back to a level of order and sensibility. You know, in the 50s, you want to contribute. In the 60s, you want to be a mentor. At 70, like me, you don't care about what anybody thinks. You're going to say what it is. So, you know, there are sort of different things that activate at certain times that we should be graceful with and sort of understand that that's part of what life's rhythm is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, you worked with some, some really incredible people of your, of your career, athletes, oh. businessmen and women, just some incredible people. What, what kind of separates the, the good from the great in, in your mind? Maybe give us a couple of examples of, of maybe some things that, that, they can they can help us differentiate the, the good from from the great, so to speak, right. and and maybe through some of the highs and lows of of, of some of those folks. Yes, well, um, first the highs and the lows. I mean, lows are inevitable, and it's part of what life is. It's not something that we ask for. It's not like we chose it on the other side. It's not like we were negligent. Um, if we kind of really look at what life is, our life projection is based upon a projected reality of what we think it's going to be later based upon what we know today. But that's not reality. That's a, a conjecture. That's a possibility. 
And so there are certain things that happen that, that aren't foreseen. As a matter of fact, 90% of what we believe is going to happen never does. Just mm. look at your own life. I mean, how often have your plans worked out? I mean, all the good stuff never happens the way you think that it's going to. And so if we kind of look at that, we realize, well, you know, our plans are estimates and they're meant to change based upon reality. And reality and what we do with it depends on our readiness and our skill level, et cetera. But then there are external things that we have no say about that will have an impact and influence things that we didn't ask for. So I've never seen anybody in life not have their most difficult moments. Never. There, there's no exception to this rule. For the famous, we see it because it's more obvious because it's you know portrayed in the media and stuff. But every one of us has what I call a, a rite of passage at some point where you face something so bad, so deep, it, it almost like seems insurmountable. But but here's what the observation is, is that that could be our best moment because it forces us to ask a different set of questions about ourselves and how we view life. And we usually will never ask those deeper questions or find a deeper sense of who we are and what our contribution is and what our purpose in life is, unless we have that contrast. People that live a life that's too good, they're always whining about their ice cream being too cold or their, you know, car not being new enough or, you know, all the stuff that really doesn't make any difference, you know, just put your food in a blender and drink it, you know, it doesn't have to show up at the right temperature, you know, I mean, it's still food. So I feel like with these moments of extreme difficulty that we didn't ask for, I think it's really important that we don't blame ourselves for certain things that we did the best that we could with, because it's just part of what life's journey is. If we, because, I mean, you look at a baseball player, I mean, he, if he gets on base 25% of the time, he's like a hero. That means mm -hmm. like seven, you know, three quarters of the time, he's not going to get on base. I mean, that's how many times has Tiger won an event, but yet he's the man. Well, probably what, like 3% of the time he's won. So, you know, the, the scaling that we bring to this in our own mind leverages against disappointment and failure from moment zero. So I feel like if we kind of look at, what are the attributes about the people that really make things happen? I can tell you precisely what some of the things are. Number one, they are appreciative and they have gratitude about the opportunity. And they honor that by doing the best they can to showcase and deliver on the, their side of the equation. I've seen this a lot, you know, even with Lance, he's got a black eye for obvious reasons. Even with Tiger, it's got a black eye for another reason. You know, Lance had his uh, Armstrong Foundation. He did a lot of good with that. You know, uh, he was generous with his teammates. You look at Tiger, the contribution that he's made to people just in terms of his humanity and what he's faced and being able to come back from what he faced that, you know, we can only expect that if you expect to learn your perfect life lessons from perfect people, you're not going to learn anything from anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, we're the losers if we judge everybody because they're not perfect. We can learn a lot from them. I can learn a lot from Tiger. You can learn a lot from Lance. So, again, I, I feel like that's a trait that we should, we should have. In the top performers, they always ask probing questions. They want to know the reality. And tell me what this really is. What is it that I need to see about this that I should know about to be able to convert this into a success. They're loyal. Uh, they're punctual. They're appreciative. They never make assumptions. 
They're not braggadocious. They're not bravado. They are very charitable, but they choose to do that anonymously rather than making a big public display about it. They, you know, I was on Branson's Island once and just the charity that the group at dinner extended to humanity because they decided to think about it jointly was touching to like, say, the least. And they're willing to admit their mistakes and take responsibility for it to find a better way. They are uh, resilient. They can pick themselves up after getting pummeled by public opinion or by the press. Um, they're not afraid to share what they see to be true. I'm not talking about the loudmouth, obnoxious people that are the flavor of the month for the press. I'm talking about, you know, the real deal, like like behind the scenes here. And you know them because they stay in the game. There's something about their longevity. And, you know, every one of us has got certain limitations with our humanness. You know, we're an imperfect species by design, and we have blind spots that we didn't ask for. There are certain things built into our anatomy and our personalities that are quirky. And sometimes we don't know the extent to which they impact others until we see it manifest. There should always be space for redemption and a chance to come back and, and, and learn from what the mistakes really are. Um, I would go back and say this as well, is that when you look at what the real prolific achievers do, they always have strong fundamentals that they never forget. They go back, like when I was working with you too, before you know, Bono goes out on stage, you hear, da 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 What's he doing? That's Bono. Yeah, well, he's with his voice coach. He's doing his scales. Well, he's Bono. He doesn't need to do scales. But he knows <laughs> that the scales are fundamental. When he goes out there, everything he does is going to be based on the fundamentals. So they never make a presumption that I'm too good for this because I've done it and I'm me. You know, they, they, they don't do that. They stick with the fundamentals. Um, they may have to trip a couple of times to get back to them. I get that. That's part of the developmental side of this. So I, I hope that the charitability thing for sure, that's anonymous, Noah, because you really don't see it because they don't want to broadcast that. Uh, they work hard. Uh, they're not temperamental. They have a lot of advisors because they want data. They don't try to play their own doctor. They're not afraid of demonstrating what weaknesses they may have that we all have and look for ways of supporting that so that the downside consequences of that are like minimized. And um, they always remain a student of their discipline. There's never a point that you can get to where you coach, coast, excuse me, because there's always new things to learn. We're always a new person from moment to moment. We see things differently. There's new technologies that arise. So they never make an assumption that somehow they're privileged and are exempt from doing what every one of us should be doing. That to me are, are the distinguishing differences. There's so much there, folks. Go back, listen to that again. Um, there's, If you're looking for a playbook for coaching, if you're looking for a playbook for yourself on what it takes to have longevity in careers, what it takes to have to, to play at your potential and to get there and to stay there, there's so much there, so many different quali qualities there. And the ones that I, that keep coming up, um, are a lot of little things, you know, and, and it's also a humility in the midst of 
the greatness, so to speak, the, the worldly greatness that, that whatever that looks like, the fundamentals of doing scales before a concert, like that is awesome to think about. Like just that idea or to think about Cristiano Ronaldo going out and being the first one out on the, on the training pitch, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the last one to leave. You know, that's what they talk about. Anybody who's ever played with them, it's like, I remember Gareth Bale was saying, I tried to get out. I went out. I wanted to get out there early to show everyone that I was, I was totally dedicated to this when I got to Real Madrid and Cristiano Ronaldo was out there before me, you know, and it's just, those are the things and the punctual. I mean, that's the thing. I remember reading a book or listening, I was, might've been listening to a podcast Chuck Daly did about the dream team back in 92. And he said, he knew the team was going to be successful beyond whatever he thought of before when he saw Michael Jordan get into the bus 45 minutes before it was mm -hmm. supposed to leave because that showed him the best of the best is does not think he's above this team and that that's that's massive so you know we're coming to an end as we say all great things must come to an end at some time but uh you know as I think about that that's not necessarily true but we won't get into that but how did you um or how do you use the lessons you've learned directly from cycling at other sports as you've coached to different people and you've you've been able to uh, walk alongside different people but how have you used these lessons you've learned directly from the sports in your marriage and in your parenting well there are certain fundamentals that cross generational barriers they cut through you know cultural differences they cut through different uh occupations there are certain things that just are that everything else is built on that's what my practice is uh, you know if i work with uh like an athlete, I mean, don't ask me about their conditioning. That's what the conditioning coach is about. But I can tell you what you need to do for you as a human playing the role as athlete with aspirations to win a gold medal. And so there are fundamentals that I think that are non-negotiable and nobody needs to do them. And as I said, to create a life of distinction, that's not natural. It requires a supernatural vigilance to apply certain things that history has proven to be true. And you don't have to do that, but it's not a free ride. You can't get somewhere by just thinking about it. You know, there's the action process uh, and in this limited uh, uh, time space continuum that we live in, there are just certain things that just are, are, are part of the rules. And so for, for me, I think it's pretty simple. It goes back to the five things. You got to have a champion's mind, not a mindset, champion's mind. You have to be able to control your day. You have to be able to know how to win. You have to know how to carry momentum. You have to be able to have a peek around the corner to see what's coming so that the blind side, blind side doesn't take you out of the game or you capitalize on an opportunity. And as long as you're working the fundamentals there, then you're going to know how to apply the secret sauce like when it counts. But you got to have the fallback position. So, you know, when you do the razzle-dazzle, after the razzle-dazzle is over, you go back and you recover by churning away at the fundamentals, bringing them back, because it's the rock that everything is built on. You build different skills and you go out, perform. Once that's over, you come back, you review, you digest, you upgrade to current reality. That to me is the name of the game. And the other thing, let me finish by saying here, is that this process never gets to a point where you arrive. It's a mm -hmm. continuous process of non-arrival. You never get there in a lifetime. There's always something more to be done. You may decide not to do it. Well, that's your choice. But every moment of our life uh, has a potential, full potential moment. 
at that time that has a best action to take. And as long as we're aware of that and that we're responsible for our own choices and we decide how we'd like to live to honor life's privilege, to me, that's a big question. It's not like, how do I want to live for myself? So the guy at the end who has the most toys wins. Well, you still lose the toys. You, you don't take the toys with you. But, but you know, when I was dying from mercury poisoning, I, I was very well aware that the only thing I was taking with me is what I gave people. It's the only thing. And the only thing that I was going to be remembered by was what I gave people. And that changed my life like forever. And, and it, I'll also say this one other thing, if I may, to close, that I think that the most important decision that we sh can make every day is to decide how we're going to show up. And the reason why I say that is that people showed up differently for my daughter. She wouldn't have the scars that she has that she didn't mm. ask for that people imposed upon her because they couldn't control their own life. You know, and we just don't, that's, that's not what you do. You know, you find a way with honor to give the best of what you got to humanity so that you can be at peace, like with yourself, knowing that no amount of stuff can make up for the lack of what we could have done that would have made the difference in the human experience, in my opinion. So I guess I'll kind of leave it there. That's great. Yeah, great stuff there. I think there's some people listening who, who, who you, you hit them with a, with a right hook where you said decide uh, how you're going to show up. I think you might have hit some of them like, oh, I, I actually get to decide that. Yes, you make that decision every day, right? When you wake up, how, how you're going to show up. I love that reminder, even for myself. Uh, I think we can constantly need that. Well, as we kind of wrap up, Jeff, this is a this is kind of a, a fun one that's educational for all of us too. But what have you watched, read, or listened to that's most impacted your thinking on your career and how you how you lead others? Anything you, you know, watched, I, read, or listened to? Well, the thing that I saw at the most recent Tour de France was, um, you know, a devastating crash. You know, and like when you crash on a bicycle at the level that I raced at, the only thing that you have between your skin and the asphalt is a thin piece of Lycra. And when you skid a hundred feet, it's like leaning up against the vertical sander. You know, you can kind of feel your skin melting off your body. It, it's like grotesque in a certain sense. But the point is, is that one of the competitors stopped just to check on his teammate. Wasn't even from his own team, but he stopped to see if he was okay. So, he chose a moment in the human experience to step outside of something that could have perhaps brought value to him. But what was more important was the humanity side of it. And I feel like if we spend just a little bit more time considering our impact on other people by deciding how we're going to show up and what it is that we're going to say and what is it that we're going to do, because there's nothing more that could be ask of us. And the other thing I'll say about this is that I don't think you should decide the value that you're bringing to anything because you don't really know. You know, when I showed that ability on a bicycle that I borrowed, I thought that's how I'm going to do it. Well, we went to a bike shop a week later to get myself a, like a racing bike. And there was a, an Olympic cyclist there and he had the biggest legs I'd ever seen, but the t-shirt he wore said USA Olympic team on it. And when I saw that t-shirt, I wanted that t-shirt more than anything. I went home I got my box of crayons, those three-decker crayons, and I draw. I drew my plan on how I was going to become an Olympian because I wanted the T-shirt. I drew the T-shirt as a logo, USA Olympic team on it. 
And then my plan was simple, be brave, work hard, no excuses. That's how I was going to do it. And I gave myself 10 years. He doesn't even remember wearing the t-shirt. But the fact that he wore the t-shirt impacted my life permanently forever. It was foundational. That was my independence day. And so I feel like we should kind of have that same spirit where can we just not decide the value of what we do by comparison, comparing ourselves against everybody else? Can we just show up and be the best that we can be best at? And whatever that is, be okay with that? Because again, you don't know. And I just sort of feel like maybe it's better that we don't because if we did, then we'd maybe take credit for it which we shouldn't be doing. So I just, again, feel like, again, that there's always room at the top for the best, no doubt about it. There's only one of us in all of creation. Let's decide how we're going to show up. Create your own logo, your own aspirational Independence Day document. Uh, I feel if we can do that, then the impact that we can make to walk off the field knowing that there's nothing more that could have been done will be fulfilled. Jeff, that's awesome. I appreciate it. Appreciate everything you've you brought Thank to you, us Paul. today on this on this podcast. It's been awesome. Thank yeah, you, Paul. Definitely. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for yeah, for everything. Thank you for so much, so much good stuff. And uh, appreciate you and all you're doing. I gotcha. Well, again, thanks folks for being a part of this conversation. I you have a lot to think about after that one. No question about <laughs> it. So a lot to process, a lot to put into action. I think it starts though with what we finished with, which is just show up. Right. And, and I think a lot of that, it not just show up, obviously doing your homework, doing all the other things, but fundamental, so many good things in this, go back, listen to it again. If, if you, uh, if you have the opportunity and put it into action, most importantly, uh, folks, if you want to learn more about anything we talked about in this show, it'll be in the show notes. If you want to learn more about warrior way, what Paul and Marcy are doing down there in Waco, Texas, please check that out. Uh, in the show notes, warriorwaysoccer.com. Coaching the bigger game, something we're still looking to, to launch here in a little bit. I know it's, it keeps getting pushed back, but we're going to do it. Check that out, coachingthebiggergame.com. Most importantly, take the what you're learning from this show. Use it to be a better uh, coach, a better spouse, a better parent, better leader, better friend, better in everything that you do. And always remember that soccer, cycling, other sports do explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks. <laughs>